0: Today, before everything else, allow me to express my delight that you are learning how to use the world of 5 a.m. more than ever before, and that you are able to do some sunyata walking, walking in voidness, without a walker. Now we will speak about anapanasati as we promised to do the other day. We'll be speaking about anapanasati or mindfulness with breathing in lines of one's aims, one's wishes meaning that one should understand how to apply it to one's needs and wishes, one's needs and aims in life. In Sri Lanka and Burma, they don't speak so much about anapanasati. Instead, they like to talk about the Sati, satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness. Here, however, we prefer to speak of anapanasati because it is the essence of the four foundations of mindfulness. And so this is the approach we will be taking to it anapanasati as the the heart or essence of the foundation of mindfulness, the satipatthana. Now this word anapanasati has been misunderstood and applied incorrectly. It's generally taken to mean mindfulness of breathing in and out. To, it's taken usually to mean simply being mindful or scrutinizing the breathing in and out. However, the proper meaning is to scrutinize something which is worthy of our investigation with every in-breath and out-breath. So it's more appropriate to speak of it as mindfulness with breathing. This is the correct understanding to scrutinize something worthwhile with every inhalation and exhalation. Now, when we speak of worthwhile things, we mean things that we want to know and understand. Things we want to be able to use beneficially and things that have some problem that we wish to solve. This is, these are the worthwhile things which will be scrutinized with every inhalation and exhalation. An engineer who sits pondering about, thinking about some mechanical problem that he has. And he does this with every inhalation and exhalation. This would be a certain kind of anapanasati for that engineer. Or for all of you, while staying here, if you to sit thinking of home with every inhalation and exhalation. That could be called mindfulness with breathing also. So this is the correct meaning of anapanasati, which you ought to understand. To scrutinize some worthwhile object or dhamma. With every in-breath and every out-breath. One is able to apply this system of practice and investigation to anything that is troubling one or which is a question in one's life. And so we call it anapanasati as one aims, or as one wishes, meaning one can apply it to any aspect of one's life, as one wishes. Mm. This approach can be applied on many levels, from the lowly levels to the highest levels. From ordinary, worldly concerns and matters to things having to do with dhamma, with religion, to spiritual matters. Especially, we can use anapanasati to regulate, manage, or control lowly and harmful things. In particular, the flow of dependent origination, which we discussed the other day. If one has anapanasati, one can control that flow so it doesn't turn into dukkha. <clears throat> and the thing that we w- look, we wish for the most in our development is to work with enjoyment and be happy while we work. This is something everybody is looking for, to be able to work to enjoy one's work and to find happiness in our work. This is something that will be quite possible and easy when one is well versed in anapanasati something very important is the ability to protect against to block off to to close off um, any kind of low, evil thing, which would come to make problems for us, sati or mindfulness, is the mechanism for doing this to to prevent against to block out any so that any low and evil things cannot get in. And this one can do quite well through anaparnasati. We often use the word protect to protect all the worthwhile and beneficial things that we have so that they aren't harmed or destroyed, so they can't be stolen from us. Mindfulness is the means for protecting all the healthy and helpful qualities of mind, of life, which we need to protect. Another word we use is to struggle or to fight. Life is a struggle. Life is a constant struggle physically to, to fight against dangers. Sometimes one even has to use weapons. There are mental struggles using energy, strength. And there, we even have to sometimes be able to struggle in court. Nowadays, this is a major battlefield in the court. To be able to struggle and fight with mindfulness and wisdom is necessary. And this will become possible through ānāpānasati. Or if we speak in a way somewhat unique to Suan Mok, we would say that if one must act physically, mentally and or spiritually then one will have the mindfulness to act correctly in all three ways the three ways this these three cover all aspects of our lives the physical the mental and the spiritual and mindfulness is necessary to help us be correct in all three ways. And then one more special thing, kind of like an added bonus, is that we can die whenever we wish. Kind of like turning off the light switch. One can switch off the light or the electricity whenever one wishes. When one has full mastery over the body, over the mind, over whatever, then we can just turn off the switch whenever the time comes. There's an example of this in one of the ancient texts. It tells of a teacher who was an expert in anapanasati. And he realized that today he would die. So he called all his disciples together, and they met in a field. And he had one group of disciples stand at one end of the field and another group at the other, and then a third group in the middle. And then he walked back and forth from one end of the field to the other. And then coming back to the middle, he died right there in the, in the hands, the arms of the students who were standing there. He was able to, to die right at that moment because of his expertise in anapanasati. <coughs> What this means is that one is able to, to set the, the point of death in this breath or that breath, that one is able to determine the breath with which we will die. Even if one is run over by a car, one still has the mindfulness, to know that one is about to die. And one can set the breath in which one will die, unless, as long as one doesn't die first. And so one, one even if involved in some fatal accident, there's always a moment to be mindful, to know that this is it. This is the moment of death. This is the This is where it stops. So, one can die just like turning off a light switch if one wishes. Now, if you don't believe us about this, then go and go and try it for yourself. That's the only way to know for sure. Let's now look at the the meaning, the essential meaning in, in this kind of training or meditation. What will be this training is a development of mindfulness. We develop the ordinary mindfulness that is natural to all of us. Now, the natural, ordinary mindfulness that we all have isn't very strong, it's not very quick. And so we will train it, develop it, until it is the highest level of mindfulness, a mindfulness that is never too slow, that is always on time. Or to put it in more Dhamma language, We can say that we can transform kilesa to bodhi. We can transform defilement into enlightenment. With mindfulness, one can transform the things which are low, unclean, confused, into things which are bright, clear. distinct this is another advantage and benefit of sati mindfulness. To put it another way we will be able to sublimate the strength of the of the defilements and transform that into a strength into energy, which is useful for enlightenment. This is very interesting. We, we don't have to go and find a new kind of energy or strength. We can just, just sublimate the power of the defilements and then use that power for the sake of enlightenment. This can be done using mindfulness. Now we'll we'll look to, at a number a diff, we'll look at a number of kinds of sati together in order to compare them. First there's the natural instinctual mindfulness. This is the sati that we we all have that we've had since birth. It's the sati that allows us to function in our ordinary lives, in our ordinary world. Without this, it'd be like we'd all be like drunk. We couldn't walk straight, we couldn't pick up food and get it into our mouths, or do anything else correctly. So there's this natural mindfulness, or sati, Which allows us to do all these normal everyday activities. However, it isn't enough. This instinctual sati isn't enough. Its capabilities are limited. Therefore, we must develop it further. This Ordinary, instinctual sati usually arrives too slow, and it's often not enough, not strong enough. For example, if we're going to yell at someone, sati comes too slow to stop us, and then so we go and yell and say something stupid, and then feel bad about it. or. There's some mindfulness where no we we are aware of this impulse to yell at somebody, to criticize them. But the sati isn't strong enough to to stop oneself, to hold oneself back. And so one goes ahead and yells, screams, and then does this embarrassing thing. This is the This is because ordinary, instinctual mindfulness is a little bit too slow, or it's not quite strong enough. Now we'll look at the mindfulness which has been developed. It will be very fast, as fast as a lightning bolt. Well-trained mindfulness is never too slow. It's never too late. It always arrives on time. Further, it's, there's enough of it. There's sufficient mindfulness to do the job. And third, it's vigorous, it's strong. This mindfulness has enough strength and vitality to do whatever needs to be done. The reason for this is because this well-trained sati has panya or wisdom, with it. When When we develop sati, then it becomes, it is more and more accompanied by wisdom, or we could say wisdom is mixed or integrated with it, and this will give then sati its speed um, size and strength. We can, we call this the sati that serves wisdom, the mindfulness which serves wisdom. Here mindfulness acts as a vehicle, the vehicle that delivers wisdom. Through our practice we're developing wisdom. As we store up more wisdom, then it needs to be used. If you've got a lot of wisdom, but never apply it to... If you have lots of intelligence, understanding and all that, but are unable to apply it to your life experience, then it's wasted. It's mindfulness that allows us to apply wisdom, to bring wisdom into action in whatever situation is confronting one, whatever one is experiencing, whether the eyes, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind. It's mindfulness that will bring wisdom into play to make use of the wisdom, in that specific situation. So this is the mindfulness which serves wisdom. In Thai there's a saying, to have under, overflowing knowledge and not be able to save oneself. To have knowledge, intelligence which is overflowing, it's leaking out of one's brain. There's so much of it. And still one isn't able to save oneself. This means that in spite of all the intelligence and understanding a person may have, if there's no mindfulness, it's all wasted. It takes mindfulness to make use of understanding in wisdom. It's through mindfulness that our understanding is applied to reality right now as we experience it so what we all need mindfulness to avoid having this overflowing wisdom that can't even save ourselves it's not that it's not just that this is this knowledge and intelligence is too much it's that it's stuffed in there and it's getting in the way there's so much of this crammed in knowledge that it actually makes one stupid. There's so much information and understanding that one becomes confused by it all. This is what we call a white darkness. All this understanding and knowledge becomes a white darkness, like when we stare at the sun. The whiteness blinds us. The last kind of mindfulness we'd like to mention today is the mindfulness which serves samadhi, which serves concentration in the moment of finally cutting through the defilement. There's a point, if our, if dhamma practice develops fully, there's a point where the defilements are totally cut through. They're eliminated. You could say they're burned out, pulled up, removed. This is the culmination of dhamma practice, the final elimination of all defilements, of all roots of and potential for defilements. And this is done primarily by samadhi, the Buddha gave it a special name, Noble Right Concentration. When the, the Noble Eightfold Path, when the eight factors of the path are fully developed and integrated, then the Buddha gave it the special name, Noble Right Concentration with seven supporters, or with seven servants here, in the final work of cutting through the defilements and eliminating them, it's the power of samādhi which is dominant. <clears throat> but all the other factors of the past are in support. And mindfulness is also supporting. Concentration, right concentration, is the eighth factor of the path. Mindfulness is the seventh, and so in this final elimination of defilement, destroying all possibility of defilement, it's this noble, this very exalted noble right concentration which does it, and sati must serve in that. All the other factors including sati. Mindfulness must back concentration up. This is a very refined and special thing. We won't have time enough to go into it in detail today, but we'd like to mention it so that you're aware of the highest use of mindfulness. Ultimately, mindfulness will support and serve samādhi in getting rid of, in disintegrating the defilement. Now we will look at the basis or foundation for training mindfulness. The foundation for, for training sati is to regulate the breathing. To regulate the breathing so that it is in a condition or in the shape that we require. This is the foundation for training mindfulness further. This is an ancient Indian word, the word pranayama, pranayama, which is to control or regulate the breathing. Breath regulation is pranayama. This is a kind of knowledge or science which has been studied and developed in India even before the religious system developed. This has been known for many thousands of years. How to regulate the breathing to use it for the needs of human beings. So this basic regulation of the breathing, or pranayama, is the foundation for training mindfulness. Now, primitive human beings who were still living in the jungles and caves and running around naked, knew how to use the breathing. This knowledge of pranayama goes back very far, even to the most primitive people. They they knew how to use the breathing to assist them in their life activities. This has its basis in the fact that even animals are able to use their breathing to regulate their their bodies, their minds. Even, even dogs, for example, know how to kind of sigh, to let out a, a long breath which relaxes one. Or animals know how to pant. They use their breathing to cool themselves, other times to calm themselves. So on one level this is rather instinctual, even animals can use their breathing to maintain a healthy, balanced state. And then our ancient ancestors were able to apply this. They could use it in many different aspects of, of ordinary life to maintain the body's health and the mind's stability. It even was used superstitiously, for example, to blow on children, to kind of scare the spirits away, so that the children would not be afraid. So in many different ways, our most primitive ancestors had the ability to use the breathing for benefits in their their lives. You, you all do this yourselves. There are times when you just take a, a deep breath. You just, just take a quick, deep, long breath in order to calm the mind. There's something disturbing you. And you just take one of these quick breaths, long breaths, and it calms one. You'll see even children doing this. Children do this. It doesn't take any training, nobody has to teach us this. It's just a natural mechanism that all of us use sometimes to, to free our minds from things that are bothering us. So we can use the breathing in these ways to free, it, free us from the things that are disturbing us. Now this natural use of the breathing is, is not very well developed. And so we need to develop it further and further so that we can deal with larger and broader problems so that we can learn to use the breathing in all situations to solve any kind of problem. So please study the natural facts of this. Please pay attention to it until so you're quite certain that this can be done. Until so you're quite certain that we can develop the breathing into something incredibly useful. It's important that you look at it this way if you are to have sufficient interest and appetite for practice. We will look at some ways in which regulating the breathing has benefits for us. The first benefits benefits are physical. We can use the breathing to make the body fresh, alive, so that it has, so that it's most efficient. The breathing can make our bodies alive and ready very efficient for whatever needs to be done Mm -hmm. there's a story that there are stories we ought to know of even if they're somewhat um mythical or fictional this is that the ability to breathe life into dead people, people who are who are just about dead. They haven't died totally, but they're on the... they've just about died, and another person is able to breathe life into them, or to bring them back to life, to resuscitate life. This is... this kind of thing is very common in ancient literature, It's something worth our interest. The next benefits are mental, that one can use pranayama for the benefit of samadhi, for a well-established, stable, focused mind. We can use the breathing, we can regulate the breathing in a proper way which will gather the mind's energy together and collect it in samadhi. This utilizes the mind's strength and energy very well. So this is another benefit, a mental benefit of this regulation of the breathing. The third third aspect is that this regulation of the breathing brings spiritual benefits. It leads to the development of true wisdom on the highest level. Once there is samadhi, samadhi leads to seeing things as they really are and this develops wisdom. When the body is is healthy and well, when the mind is healthy and at peace, then wisdom develops easily. And so Sanayama regu breath regulation ultimately leads to the development of wisdom if it's practiced correctly. People in the stone age were in, were able to use the breathing in these wonderful ways. They could get a lot of benefit from breath regulation. But now people in the space age, the nuclear age, the computer age, are, have no clue how to use the breathing for physical, mental, and spiritual health. We ought to be a bit ashamed. We ought to be rather embarrassed by the Stone Agers, who were much, much more intelligent about using their breathing. It might be because we love our computers too much. We love our computers so much that we we aren't at all interested in making use of nature. There are certain things nature has given us since long ago. But we're not interested. We totally ignore these things because we're so in love with our computers. We ought to give some thought to what is really beneficial for us. Now we'll consider some necessary components for training mindfulness. But sometimes we, we... Sometimes we speak of meditation as mindfulness training. Sometimes we speak of it as developing samadhi. Either way, it's necessary to have an object, or in Pali, an arāmanā. Arāmanā is some object for the mind to fix upon, something for the mind to scrutinize. Without any object, the mind doesn't know what to pay attention to. It doesn't know what to establish on. And so, a necessary component of our this training is an object and a rāmanā. If you're going to shoot a gun, you need some object, you need some target at which to shoot. If you don't have a, a, ta- a target, there's no object to shoot at, it would be crazy to even shoot. Further, this object must be one which is adjustable. We need an object that can be adjusted and refined as we continue this training. As we train, we need an o- the object needs to constantly be improved to suit the circumstances and needs of our practice. And so we're looking for an object which has that flexibility, which can be refined further and further. This point is very important. Some people hear that Anapanasati has sixteen lessons, and they think that's too much. They think, "Oh, 16 that's way too much, I, just, I can't do that. And so they give up, they quit. That's a wrong understanding. To think that there are 16 different lessons is a wrong understanding. It's really all just one thing. It's all one object or thing. We should look at it this way. So, in anapanasati, there's just one object. There's a single object. However, our way of looking at it, our way of observing and investigating this single object has four dimensions. There's the physical dimension, the feeling dimension, the mental dimension, and the Dhamma dimension. So there are four dimensions or angles at which, with which we investigate this one object. And then further, each of these four dimensions itself has four angles or dimensions. So altogether, there are sixteen dimensions. But these are, one should understand, it's all the same object. But we are observing it, investigating it from sixteen different angles or in sixteen dimensions. But it's important to see that it's all just a single object. For example, if you are look want to look at this tree and you want to see it completely, then you have to look at it from every angle. You have to look at it from the top. You have to look at it from underneath, from the front, from the back, from the left, from the right. You have to look at it from every direction. From every angle in order to see it fully. We have to study the leaves, the bark, the roots. We have to study all the different parts of the tree. What function do the leaves perform? You know, how does it, how does it pick up the sunlight and then manufacture carbohydrates through photosynthesis? And then how is that sent through the inner bark to the rest of the tree. And then how do the roots and uh, all that pull up nutrients and water from the soil? How do... So we have to really understand and know a tree. We must study all its different parts and the various functions these parts play. Now, it's... First, it may seem like a lot, but we need to recognize that it's all one thing, and it's not too much. If you want to really know a tree, you just study all the different aspects. It's not too much. It's not beyond our ability. Or when we look at another person, if we want to really know another person, we don't just look at their face. They could always disguise their face and fool us. We don't just look at their face. We We look at their whole, whole body, and then we look at their, the way they act, the way they behave, what kind of manners they have, their way of living, their way of speaking. We study all aspects of them very carefully in in order to really know that person. It's the same with the breathing, when in anapanasati. We don't just look at it from one single aspect. Our understanding would not be very profound. We learn to look at it from sixteen, in sixteen different ways, from sixteen different angles, so that our understanding is thorough and complete. What's rather silly is that most people don't even know their their water glass. All they know is the glass from the top when they pick it up to drink. Most people don't really know the water glass. They've never turned it over to look at the bottom, for example. This is how most people are. They, they don't even know the water glasses they're using. And now we'll look more at the ways of scrutinizing of investigating the breathing we'll be looking into the breathing or at the breathing in different ways in order to study the necessary components of life life is can be broken up or at least distinguished into Different components. <clears throat> there is life itself. There are the causes of life. There are the problems or the dukkha of life. And there is the, the solution or the curing of those problems and dukkha. And so we'll look at, at the breathing in four dimensions the physical dimension, the feeling dimension, the dimension of the states of mind, the mental dimension, and the finally the dimension of Dhamma. First, we'll observe the body. We'll observe the body because all this flesh and blood that makes up the body and we'll explore the breathing as part of that body. The breathing is part of the physical existence of the body. We begin with the body because this is the, this is the foundation of life. And all the problems and difficulties of life are based upon the body. So we'll begin our investigation on this basic level, the physical level. This is called prāyānubhātsana, <coughs> prāyānubhātsana, contemplation of the body. So mindfulness is applied to the contemplation of the body. Now, the vetanā, the feelings, arise towards the body. We feel the different aspects of the body. If there wasn't any feeling, it would mean that the body is dead. If we stop feeling anything, then there's no body there to, to feel, and it's dead. So the feelings are established upon the body. And this is the second thing that we investigate. Then what is it that feels the feeling? What is it that controls the body? What is it that controls the feeling? It's, this thing is the jita, the mind or the heart. It's the jita that feels the feeling. It's the jītā, the mind that controls the body, and so now we must explore that. Using mindfulness, we experience the states of mind. We investigate these. This is called jītānu-bhācana, the use of mindfulness in order to contemplate the mind. And then, the final dimension or stage is to look at the things that make us stupid, the things that make the mind ignorant, and then which leads to attachment. Then we look at everything, because all things are the things that lead the mind into ignorance and into attachment. All things are the basis of dukkha due to ignorance and attachment. So one looks at all things in order to know all these things which make suffering and then to understand them so they're no longer responsible for dukkha. So we need to study all things both the asankata, that which is unconditioned, uncreated, isn't made, it doesn't die, and then all the things which are sankata, the things which can be created are produced, which are changed, conditioned, and which eventually end. We need to study all things, from the lowest to the highest, to study all the things that we cling to as being positive and negative. What are all these things that trick the mind? What are all these things that deceive the mind so that they're thought to be, this is positive, that is negative, and then the mind clings to them? positively and negatively. We need to understand all these things so that the mind doesn't, is no longer deceive, deceived by them, so that none of these make the mind stupid, so that it stops clinging to them as positive and as negative. There are four dimensions to this single thing. It's just one thing, but there are these four dimensions. The body is the basis of it all. And then there are the feelings which are felt through the body. And then the mind that feels those feelings. And then there are all the things which deceive the mind, which trick the mind into attaching to them is positive and negative. So you can see that all of this is one thing. It's just looking at this one thing from four different dimensions. And the results of all this is a single thing as well. The single result is no dukkha, the end of of dukkha. When we're ignorant about all things, we attach to them, and there is dukkha. When there's no more ignorance about everything, then there's no more dukkha. This is the single result, the end of dukkha. And it's, it's quite nice that through this, one will be totally free of dukkha. In this way, one doesn't have to suffer dukkha. And further, one can be happy whenever one wants. Any satisfying condition, that's happiness. And we can be happy, happy at will. There's an important secret that this system of study and investigation, this way of practice and training, and the results that come from it are all natural. All of this is natural. It doesn't belong to any particular group or individual or race. All the things we are talking about can be practiced by anyone, by any human being. These these things are, this reality, these facts and ways of dealing with reality are totally natural. It doesn't belong to a particular race. Anyone can practice it, whether one is from Europe, America, Australia, Japan, wherever. One can make use of these things because they're, they're natural. The this prehistoric man was able to make use of these natural facts. And so can all the descendants of prehistoric man. This doesn't depend on time, it doesn't depend on place, it doesn't depend on culture, language, or anything else. These things are natural and universal for all human beings. So it's, don't go and think that this is Buddhist, that these things belong to Buddhists that this is buddhist meditation or something it's not it's totally natural it belongs to all human beings to all living things however long the universe existed this principle has existed that wherever one wherever one goes whether into the heavens or the hells if they exist this principle applies everywhere this principle is unlimited by time and space so why even think about race or culture or religion this is this principle is absolutely universal mm. applies everywhere anytime any place In the time that remains, we'll speak about how to put these, how to practice according to these four dimensions, and we'll necessarily speak in brief. As for the body, the first dimension, you've already been taught how to work with this over at the meditation center. Your instructors have explained how to calm the breathing and calm the body. All we'd like to say at this time is that in this first dimension of the practice of anapanasati, one learns to fully integrate the two bodies, the flesh and blood body and the breathing body when these two are integrated then the body has tremendous vitality and ability. So this full integration of the breathing and the body is what we accomplish in the first aspect of practice. What this means is that the body is fully is in full health and is has is very energetic. The the Chinese speak of this as an inner energy. Sometimes they get carried away applying it for rather superstitious purposes. But if you're interested in an inner energy, then this can be developed in this stage of Anapanasati to have the body in full health, in full energy. Then we come to the Vedana, the feelings. And we understand that your instructors have explained how to scrutinize piti, the stimulating satisfaction kind of feeling, and sukha, the cool happiness sort of feeling. And then we need to be able to regulate the feelings or to control them so that they don't create any problems for the mind. The entire world, all the people in the world, including each of you, are enslaved to the feelings. Feelings are what makes us jump and run around and do all the other crazy things we do. Everything we do is because of the feelings. All of the world, all the things in the world have their value in the feelings. All the things that you value are simply because of the feelings to which we are enslaved. Because of this enslavement, it's necessary to learn how to control the feelings so that they're no longer our masters, so that instead we become masters of them. In Asia, and there's even, you can even quote the Buddha on this, people like to say that the world goes according to karma. The word, the world follows according to action. Karma means deeds or actions, and the whole world goes according to these actions but actions or karma happen following the mind or according to the mind if the world follows from karma karma follows from the mind it's the mind that is responsible for all actions so that means the whole world goes according to the mind the whole world follows from the mind. Obviously, then, we need to be able to control the mind. Otherwise, the world will end up in a mess. If the mind is a mess, then the world will be a mess. But if the mind is under control, then the world will be under control. This is the value, this is what we must train with in the third dimension of anapanasati we can know all kinds of minds. We can can understand all kinds of mind, even the mind of the arahant, the enlightened being or the enlightened one. First of all, we can experience all the kind of minds or all the states of mind which happen for us. We can experience these directly, such as greedy mind and angry mind and depressed mind and so on. But we can also know the, we can know indirectly the mind which we aren't experiencing. The more deeply we know the, the defiled mind, the more we will understand the mind that is undefiled, which is the mind of the arahant or we, the enlightened mind. we can understand all kinds of minds when one has trained the mind fully one can make it one can delight the mind at will one can make the mind joyful and and happy at any time one can focus and collect the mind one can stabilize the mind at will and one can free the mind liberated from whatever it's grabbing onto so the results of training the mind are one can delight the mind at will we can make the mind stop and gather itself in samadhi at any time and one can let go make the mind let go at any time the last dimension we got involves everything it's an investigation of all things that we can know and experience within the limits of the knowable we investigated all because all of these things are the basis for ignorance we become we're ignorant about all these things and for that reason we attach to them. Because of our ignorance, we take them to be positive, we take them to be negative. This leads to liking and disliking, which leads to attachment, ego, and selfishness. So we need to investigate all these things, all these things about which we are ignorant, until we understand them correctly. Ignorance is to misunderstand, to not understand, to, or to understand incorrectly. So now we will study them until understanding them properly, until we see that all things are the basis for attachment, until we stop attaching to them, to see that, that the good, is just a basis for attachment which gets us into trouble and evil is another basis for attachment which gets us into lots of trouble seeing all things in this way then we will stop attaching to them we'll stop making problems the first thing to see is anijang or impermanence all things depend on their causes and their conditions and as the causes and conditions change the things change there is impossible for things to remain still to be motionless it's just their nature to change and this inherent change is the impermanence we need to see this is the starting point of understanding things as they really are. In realizing the impermanence of something, then our attachment to that thing begins to fade away. The more we see impermanence, the more attachment fades away. This fading away of attachment is called viraka, viraka. So uh, we need to observe and study this fading away of attachment. When attachment dissolves and fades away, when it keeps fading, it eventually ends. When attachment ends, all dukkha ends, all the defilements end, all our problems end. This is called nirotak, the quenching the quenching of all fires, of all dukkha. This is the next thing to observe, to observe the quenching of, of attachment and with it, the quenching of dukkha. The fourth lesson of this final dimension is the consummation of this training. It's called to throw away, or to throw back. All those things that one is attached to, now that there's no more attachment, they can be thrown back to nature, to their rightful owner. This is called pāti-nitsaka, tossing back, throwing back, all these things to nature. This is the, this is the, fulfillment and consummation of this training all life belongs to nature all life comes from nature but it's like li- nature gives us life on loan where life is lent to us and life or and nature doesn't charge any rent or any interest in giving us life and then we're free to develop this life interest-free to the highest benefit possible and life and nature doesn't charge us a thing but because of our stupidity once we're life is lent to us we become thieves we start to embezzle we start to claim that this is mine, this is me. This life that was given us freely by nature is then taken to be me, taken to be mine. This is just naked thievery, embezzlement, whatever you wish to call it. And once we 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 perpetuate these crimes, then nature slaps us. Every time we steal something, saying, this is me or this is mine, nature slaps us for, for our crimes. Until one day we've been slapped silly so much that we finally start to wake up and say, no more, I'm, I'm sick of getting slapped. I'm sick of getting punished. I'm not going to bother with it anymore. And then so we start giving it all back to nature. We give it all back so that nature won't slap us anymore and when it's all been tossed back to nature we even though we've developed life to the to the highest eventually we we give it all back to nature if not any sooner at least when we die when we die all life goes back to nature this is the a metaphorical way of speaking for the consummation of our practice, and so our life is clean. Life is clean. There's nothing dirty left. Life is clear and bright in knowledge and understanding. No more darkness, and life is at peace. There is the there is the bliss. <coughs> Of peace. There's no more dukkha. There's nothing painful, unpleasant, unsatisfying about life anymore. There's no more dukkha in life. Life is free. We have been freed from the prison of our own ignorance. We've broken the prison of stupidity and have escaped from it. So we have escaped from the prison of ego we are now the prison has dissolved the bars have fallen away and we have are freed from the prison of the ego so if you like you can call this explanation a manifesto of anapanasati, or call it what you will We've explained in summary how to practice it. If you'd like more details, there are many books and tapes available in English, so you can, if you need to understand this more. Mm-hmm. Lastly, thank you for listening. Nonetheless, you've been patient, so it's time to end today's meeting.